to dig into this. We're going to look at uh, at Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Uh, so we're going to take a, taking a larger section than we normally do. Uh, but let me uh, pray for us before we jump in. Lord God, we are people who come to your word knowing our weakness. We know that we come in with, with all sorts of different struggles in our lives, different difficult circ circumstances that we're facing, Lord. Uh, some of us are struggling with doubt today. Some of us are, are struggling with just keeping our head above water. Some of us are struggling with relationships. Lord, we, we know our weakness. And as we, as we come this morning to your word, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to, to, to know your word, to, to, to hear from your word, to, to know you more through your word. Uh, but we, we pray that you would also speak into the circumstances that we are facing today. The ways that we need your help. We need you day in and day out. And, and, and we pray that you would help us to see that as we come today. Help your word to bear fruit in our lives. To, to, to do what it's meant to do. As, as you call it, a sharp two-edged sword that, that lays bare our hearts. So help us as we come, Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you'll open up. 2 Hebrews 7, we're going to read 28 verses here in Hebrews chapter 7, so buckle up. Uh, as, as we look at this passage, uh, we've been in a, a few different uh, uh, chapters that have talked about, as you know, uh, we looked a couple weeks ago at the priesthood of, uh, of Christ and this idea that the author began to tell us about, but then he paused, he turned toward us the last few weeks and we looked at some hard passages and encouraging passages uh, that, that spoke to our need to examine ourselves first. To not be spiritually complacent, to not be spiritually stagnant. But before the author goes deep into this idea of, of Jesus Christ's priesthood and who he is and why he's a, a better priest than any other priest uh, that, that ever existed... Uh, he, he told us that we need to examine ourselves. We need to fight against spiritual stagnancy. But now he returns to what he started a couple of chapters ago. And I know you've been eagerly anticipating and waiting for this guy, Melchizedek. <laughs> Who is he? Uh, we're going we're gonna to answer that question this morning. We're going to hear all you ever want to know about Melchizedek this morning. Uh, as the author uh, brings us to this figure in the Old Testament. Let's read, let's read God's word together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, or into him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father, or mother, or genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And these, those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, 
though these also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it <clears throat> the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek quoting the psalm that Tim just read. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing, from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. That is a lot. We are going to dig in a little bit. My hope this morning is that as we look at this passage, I want you to see the reason I'm doing this entire passage in, in one go here is I think that, that the author of Hebrews presents to us here a case. A case after talking to us about uh, our own need to follow Jesus, not to be stagnant in our spiritual lives. He, he presents to us a case for why Jesus is better than anything else. He presents to us this, this, this full case specifically looking at Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament high priest, the high priest that God had, had given to his people, the role that God had, had commanded his people to take in the, in the Old Testament. But I want you to think first about uh, this idea of a high priest. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage in an old 
uh, it, kind of a pseudo-canonical book. It's not part of our, our Bibles, but it was written by, a, uh, by an, uh, an ancient uh, Jewish author before Christ came. Uh, it's, it's called the uh, Ben Sirah or the or Sirach. Um, and, uh, and there's a passage that, that talks about the high priest. This is a couple hundred years before Jesus came. Just listen to the words about the high priest. This is describing the high priest going in on the day of atonement uh, to uh, the Holy of Holies. It says that it's how glorious he was surrounded by the people. When he came from behind the temple curtain, he was like the morning star appearing through the clouds or the moon at the full, like the sun shining on the temple of the Most High, or the light of the rainbow on the gleaming clouds. When he put on his gorgeous vestments, robed himself in perfect splendor, and went up to the holy altar, he had a glory to the court of the sanctuary. When the priests were handing him the portions of the sacrifice as he stood by the hearth with his brothers round him like a garland, he was like a young cedar of Lebanon in the midst of a circle of palms. And then the sons of Aaron shouted and blew their trumpets of beaten silver, and they sounded a mighty fanfare as a reminder before the Lord. And instantly the people, as one man, fell on their faces to worship the Lord their God, the Almighty, the Most High. And the choir broke into praise, and the full sweet strains of resounding song, while the people of the Most High were making their petitions to the merciful Lord. This is a, a few lines from this ancient passage of the, the glory that, that the people saw in this figure of the high priest, this Old Testament figure that, that was given these, these specific clothes to wear, given these specific uh, roles to, to enact in order, to, in order to, 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 to bring the people before the Lord God. Because the people, as you know, had a, had a problem. They were unclean, they were sinful, they struggled with various sins, just as we do. And God is holy, completely separate from sin, unable to even be around sin, in fact, consumed sin. And so this people that were, that, that were sinful and struggled with their weakness could not be around their holy God, but as Moses pleaded with God in the Old Testament in, in, in the book of Exodus, he said, if you're not with us, what's, what's the point? What's the point of us even having been rescued? They needed a high priest. And, and, and we don't often think in these terms in our modern day, but, but friends, we struggle with some of the same things. We've been rescued, but we still struggle with sin, do we not? We still struggle day in and day out with our own weakness. We struggle with going back to the things that, that we know we ought not to do, but we do them anyway. Or we know things that, that we ought to do, and we neglect them. We fail to love our neighbors. We fail to follow our, our God as we should, and, and, and we need help. We need someone who can bring us before God continually stand before God on our behalf. So, as we think about this idea of a high priest, I want us to, to start by, by reflecting or thinking about our own weakness. But the author, as he jumps into this passage, uh, begins with this figure, Melchizedek. And I want to talk just a few minutes about this figure, Melchizedek, here, because here's, here's the thing. The author of Hebrews finds this, 
this man, Melchizedek, to be wildly important, as you see in chapter 7 here, and he's already mentioned him a, a couple other times in the book. But Melchizedek only shows up two times in the entire Old Testament. He only shows up two times. His name appears twice, once in, in Genesis chapter 14 and once in Psalm 110, which Tim just read for us. We go back to Genesis 14 for just a second. Abraham, you know, the great patriarch, the great figure of the Old Testament, the father of all of Israel, the one who had received God's promises, his nephew had gone and decided to live close to the city of Sodom. And, and a group of kings came and defeated a group of other kings in the valley. Seems like there are wars happening a lot all over the Old Testament. And this is one of those wars that, that just kind of gets talked about for a few verses where kings come and defeat other kings and they take Lot and his family as a part of their spoils of war. So they, they've taken Lot away and, and Abram hears about this and he goes out and he defeats the kings and, and rescues Lot's, Lot and he brings him back. And, and as Abram comes back, here's what Genesis 14 tells us. It says, after his return from the defeats of Keter or however you say that name, and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevan, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, the, of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we get this this picture where this figure Melchizedek kind of shows up and he's there for a couple of verses, blesses Abraham, receives tithes from him, and then we never hear from him again until this prayer in Psalm chapter 110. This was a psalm, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that was, that was seen to be a promise by the Jewish people of the one to come, the Messiah to come. And verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The, the, the one who writes this psalm, the person who writes this psalm, seems to, to take this figure, look at this figure, showed up in Genesis 14, and see him as somehow connected to the coming Messiah. So these are the only two times in the entire Old Testament that this guy, Melchizedek, shows up. But our author finds some great significance in this figure. This raises at least a, a couple of questions for us as we come to this passage. The first is this. Who, who was Melchizedek? Who on earth was he? Some people have thought, well, was he an angel? Was he just some, maybe, maybe actually a, a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ coming? Uh, we see in, in various places around the, the Old Testament, uh, an angel of the Lord showing up and speaking on behalf of God. Uh, but, but there's no hints of that anywhere. It, it seems like Melchizedek was just a guy who was a king. And he happened to also be a priest, which is, by the way, something that almost never happens in the Old Testament, a king and a priest together. A guy who comes, he's a king, a priest, he serves God, and then he leaves. But he has qualities, the author of Hebrews say, says, that, that, that resemble the Son of God. It says he somehow resembles the Son of God. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But, but the second question that arises is, is why does he feel like, why does the author of Hebrews, when he's encouraging this struggling Christian community, why does he appeal to this idea of a priesthood of Melchizedek? Isn't this just kind of a weird abstract idea? Why do we need to hear about this? I want you to see this morning that, that, that what the author does is he wants to dig in deep and he wants to prove 
that Christ's priesthood is better than the priesthood that we find in the Old Testament, the Aaronic priesthood, the, the priesthood that, that God set up for his people in the law. That Christ's priesthood is better, it's more glorious, it's more effective. We're going to see how the author does this. So the first argument he's going to make is in verses 1 to 10. And he looks at this person, Melchizedek, and he finds several ways that Melchizedek, this, this figure who shows up in Genesis 14, resembles the Son of God. There are several ways in which he, he has these qualities that seem to point to the person of Jesus Christ. The first is his name. He's the king of righteousness. And in, in Hebrew, the name Melchizedek comes from the two Hebrew words Melech and Sedek, which is the word for king and the word for righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And this, this, of course, anticipates what the New Testament is going to tell us about Jesus, that he is a king who brings righteousness to us, a king who is the righteous one. He's, he's the Lord of all things. And, and not only is he righteous himself, not only does he do righteous things, but he actually, the New Testament tells us, brings about a righteousness that we could never bring about on our own. We struggle with sin. He brings righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem, uh, which, which is a, a, a word related to the idea of peace in the Old Testament, shalom. So he's not only the king of righteousness, but he's also the king of peace. So the author of Hebrews reflects on the name, first of all, who this, this figure is, and says, well, well, there's something about his name that points forward to, to Jesus, points forward to the Savior that I worship and serve. But then he, he goes beyond that. He says, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the fact that he's a king and a priest at the same time. This never happens in the Old Testament. You never get somebody who's a priest who's also functioning as a king. These are two distinct roles. Only the priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And the, and the king has a separate role from God, and God keeps those roles separate throughout the Old Testament. In fact, mandates that, that the king cannot go and try to do priestly duties, and the priest cannot go carry out kingly duties. But one thing that we see in the New Testament, is, is, is that for the first time, this idea of king and priest are given to the same person, ascribed to the same person, the person of Jesus. So as, as the author of Hebrews looks back, he sees not only that, that Melchizedek has a name that points to Jesus, he sees that he has, has jobs that point to Jesus, but he also sees that he has a family history that points to Jesus. And that is, he doesn't have a family history. And if you... Read through the book of Genesis, every single person that's of any significance at all, you get, you get their whole family history. And if you're reading through it, you, we're, we're, we often just kind of skim through those chapters because it's a lot of names. There is nobody who's significant in the book of Genesis who does not get a family history laid out, but Melchizedek gets nothing. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. He, he looks back and he, he says, the author of Genesis wrote about Melchizedek and he mysteriously pops onto the scene then we never hear about his death this is one other way that he resembles Jesus Christ someone who came in to our world, broke into our world in the incarnation and who is eternal who never passes away so the author sees in this person of, of Melchizedek and 
these different things that point to his Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want you to pause just for a moment here and, and, and see how the author has read his Old Testament, because it's hard for us to read the Old Testament sometimes, I think. And, and there's several things the author does here that I think are helpful for us. He, he, first of all, he recognizes the wonderful unity of God's voice through Scripture. He recognizes the fact that God speaks in a way throughout Scripture that connects, that, that, that there are figures in the history of the Old Testament that, that by God's providence, point to Jesus. Help us to understand who Jesus is. Uh, he also uh, recognizes so, the, important of, the importance of seeing uh, in, in interpreting Scripture in light of Scripture. He takes two different texts in the Old Testament, Psalm 110 and Genesis chapter 14, and he reads them in light of each other. But he sees how those two texts point to Jesus. This is, this is helpful for us as just a side note on how we ought to, to read uh, Scripture, and specifically to read the Old Testament and some of those harder passages. But I want to dive in, and here's where I want to where I want to dig in a little more. What is the point? What is the point of what this author has done with Melchizedek? What is the point of laying out these similarities between Jesus and Melchizedek? And here's what I want to show you. A few different ways that the author uh, shows us how great and wonderful Jesus is. Look at verses 4 to 10 first. He begins by showing us that, that Melchizedek is greater than even the most well-respected man of the Jewish faith. The author's not, not diminishing Abraham here. In verse 4, he calls him the patriarch. He points to his, his extremely important office and the fact that he should be well-respected. And in fact, he's just talked about how we ought to follow Abraham's example. He sees Abraham as a hugely significant and important figure. But then he says, look at this. Melchizedek actually received tithes from Abraham. This is, this is how priests were supposed to do in the Old Testament. They were supposed to receive tithes. But what the author says is, is Abraham, who's greater than any of the priests, because Abraham is, is the one who all the priests came from, he actually paid tithes to Melchizedek, a non-Jewish man who's a servant of God most high. And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So what, what the author shows us is that this, this figure is greater than even the greatest Old Testament figure. And, and, and by virtue of that, the author wants us to know that Jesus is greater than anything the Old Testament could ever have given us. Jesus is greater than anything that, that, that any Old Testament figure could accomplish. But then he gets into uh, some reasons for this. And, and in verse 11, he turns to the person of Jesus. So he starts by talking about how Melchizedek is greater and how Jesus is, is in the line in the priesthood of Melchizedek. But then he talks about how Jesus himself is greater because of this. And the first thing he shows us is that Jesus' priesthood is effective. It's more effective. He actually gets the job done. He actually accomplishes what he set out to do. Look at verse 11. He says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been? For another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. What's, what's the author saying here? Well, he's saying that, that think about Old Testament life. Think about life for the Jewish people. They, they were commanded to go again and again and again back to the high priest. And they had to keep offering sacrifices. They had to keep performing these rituals. And what the author shows us is that could never be effective. Which is clear from the fact that they had to keep going back. They kept having to perform the rituals. 
They kept having to, 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 in a sense, beat their heads against the wall to try and atone for their sins. And the priests who stood as really more than anything else, they were, they were butchers in terms of the, what they were spending time doing. Over and over and over again, having to offer these sacrifices. It wasn't effective. And what the author shows us here is we have somebody who gets the job done. While these Old Testament figures could not get the job done, we now have somebody who gets the job done. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, hear this, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but the, by the power of an indestructible life. The Old Testament priests weren't, weren't priests by virtue of, of any accomplishment of their own. They were, they were simply, in the law, required to be priests if they, were, if they had the right parents. It was who your mom and dad were that determined, and specifically who your dad was, that determined whether or not you were a priest in the Old Testament. I want to talk specifically to you young people right now for just a moment. Because here's something that, that as, as we think about uh, about this idea of, of, of in the law, God, God giving rules around uh, who your parents were, <laughs> and, and, and those who had specific parents in the Levitical line were the ones who were going to be priests. We might think about our own lives, too. We might, we might think about the ways that, that we oftentimes want to rest on things that are not going to be effective. And one of those things is resting on the fact that I have parents who love Jesus. Or resting on the fact that I've grown up in a home where we talk about Jesus. And, and, and what the author shows us here is that those kinds of things are not bad things. It's a wonderful thing to grow up hearing about these things, but they are ineffective to save you. They cannot save you. Who your parents are cannot save you. Who your friends are cannot save you. Who you choose to, to, to bring into your life cannot save you. There's only one. One who can be effective. So my young people, I, I encourage you to, to, to think and not to, not to just depend on the faith of your parents. But there's one who is effective. It's Jesus. As you come to know Jesus, as you come to really to know who he is, as you come to embrace him, you have a high priest who's effective and who can do something your parents can never do for you. He can save you. He can bring you into his family. A family that will never end because he will not pass away. He's already risen. And he's living. Friends, I want you to see Verses 18 and 19 as well here. Verses 18 and 19 say, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. There's that idea again. The law could not do something for you to save you. The law cannot be effective in saving you. But, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, the author tells us, through which we draw near to God. And, and 
In friends of what you see, these words the author uses, he says it is it is weak, the law is weak and useless. The author knows that the law is important. It was, it was something given by God, but, but when he sees the person of Jesus Christ, he sees just how weak and useless those things are to save. That the only effectiveness of the Old Testament priests, of these, these, these priests that God gave his people, was to point them to the one who could get the job done. Was to point them forward to the one who was coming, who was going to be effective. And, and there are so many places, just like the, the, the Old Testament community, that we go again and again and again, that, that we want to get the job done, but it never gets the job done. What the author lays before us today, this morning in our passages, is that while we go to other places and we, and we beat our heads against the wall, and we, and we want people or things to deliver for us, and they don't, there is one who will deliver there's one who gets the job done. There are many other places, many other options available to us in our society to try and fix our issues, to try and fix the difficulties that we face. And, and, and there are many legitimate ways that these things can be helpful. Friends, they are not effective to save you from your deepest there's only one who is effective to save and that's Jesus another aspect of, of this that the author talks about is that, that he says Jesus is, is not only is he more effective but he's effective because he's from a better tribe verses 13 to 14 I know we're jumping around but he says for the one of, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Judah is the, the tribe of the kings. So the author, the author brings out explicitly, he says he's not only, Jesus Christ is not only a priest, but he's a king. And we see this in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. When John looks and he sees in a vision and he sees someone who's a lion. He's the king on his throne and no one, no one can challenge his reign and his rule. But then he, he looks again and, and it's a lamb. A weak. Creature who, 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 who's been slain, John says, who's been sacrificed. And he sees on the same throne the lion and the lamb. And it's this picture of who Jesus is. He's not only the king who is on the throne and will not be challenged in his rule. He's at the same time the one who's given up his life for you. The one who's become your priest. This is the Jesus that we serve. The one who's almighty. And yet, who is our sacrifice? The author doesn't stop there. He, he talks about Jesus' Jesus's priesthood as being inaugurated with an oath. He says this in verse 20 and 21, and we looked at this just a little bit last week. He says, it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And, and, and this is language that, 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 that might feel strange to us because we don't talk about oaths very much, but the idea here is that God didn't just stop at accomplishing your salvation, but as we saw last week, he's giving you more surety. He knows how difficult it is to believe, how, how hard it is to struggle with doubt, so he gives you a guarantee. 
He gives you an oath. He says, I've sworn by myself, and that will not change. He knows how weak we are. So he adds to our assurance that he will not change his mind. He will not throw you out. If you are in his family, you are his forever. The author then tells us not only that, 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 that there's this surety because, of, because Jesus is, is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's our guarantee of God's salvation. But he also says it's an eternal priesthood. It's a better priesthood because it's an eternal priesthood. And this is uh, one of the most obvious uh, weaknesses of the Old Testament priests is that they died. They didn't last forever. I, my, my priest who I go to and, and he does my sacrifices for me, one day he will Kick the bucket, and I gotta find another priest. And this is what the author tells us. It's never, never could have been effectual for you. This Old Testament system, this other system of rituals, of, of going to other things, because Jesus is the only one that's eternal. Jesus will not stop his priestly ministry to you. And, and as a side note here, this is why we can never be satisfied with an earthly pastor. Because pastors are weak. And pastors will make mistakes. And pastors will mess up. And pastors will die. But there is one who we serve who does not die. There is one who we serve who will live forever. Who will be your priest forever who will stand at the side of the Father representing you forever. That is the one who we come to worship, the one who we come to hear, the one who we come to serve. This is the only basis that we have for what the author calls a better hope, security. It's not a hope that's subjective to us. It's not a hope that, 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 that's dependent upon us. It's a hope that's dependent upon him on the eternal one. And the author says that he is interceding for you. He always, not only that, he always lives to make intercession for you. That Jesus prays for you at the Father's side. That as you struggle with sin, as you struggle with difficulty, as you struggle with suffering, Jesus is praying for you. He lives to make intercession for you. The last thing that the author says is that not only is Jesus better in all of these different ways, not only is he from a better tribe, not only is he more effective, not only has he, has he given us a guarantee, not only is he eternal, but he's also, and this is, kind of the climax of the author's argument, he says he's morally perfect. He's perfect. Look at verses 26 to 28. He says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, those high priests who had to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. You see that? The first thing that the priest had to do before he could go offer sacrifices for anybody else was he had to go offer sacrifices for his own sins. 
because he struggled, because he made decisions that, that, that went against God, because he himself was a hypocrite, just as we all are. In so many instances in our lives, we, we, we do the thing that we, that we profess to be wrong. We participate in the very behavior that we would condemn. And, 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 and the high priest, just like us, struggles with hypocrisy, so he has to go and offer a sacrifice for himself first. And, and this is where Jesus' perfect life is so important for us, friends, because, because he came and he, and he withstood temptation. He went and did battle with the devil in the wilderness, and he, and he did not give in to sin. He did not give in to sin once in his life, because if he had even once when he went to the cross, he would have been paying for his own sins. But because of his perfection, because of his absolute moral perfection, because he never sinned once against God, he went to the cross and he was able to pay for you and I. And he was able to, to give his righteousness to you and I, a righteousness that we do not deserve. Because my are we hypocrites. And this is why the author says, friends, this wonderful, beautiful phrase in chapter or in verse 25, he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Do you know this morning, Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost? What a phrase that is. He's not just able to save you. He doesn't just come to save you in parts of your life. He comes to go all the way down so that he might bring you all the way back up with him. And how can you do that? Well, it's because he has gone all the way down. He's gone to the grave. He's gone to the worst part of human experience. And he's able to save you to the uttermost. As you reflect on this Jesus who saves to the uttermost, to, one thing that we ought to do, friends, is we ought to, to, to see our tendency to want Jesus just to save a part of our lives. And that's not the salvation Jesus brings. That's not a Jesus that's recognizable in the New Testament, someone who just comes to save a little part of us while we keep the rest of it together. But he came to save you to the uttermost. He came to a people who know how deeply they need him, how they have no hope apart from him. And he will save you to the uttermost. He's a better high priest. He's the only one who can be effective in saving you and me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as you stand praying before the Father on our behalf, at this, at this moment, we come and we and we, and we pray to you and we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the ways that you have, have effected salvation in us. You have brought about salvation in a way that nothing else can. And we pray that you would help us. Help us with our weaknesses. We keep going back to other things, other counterfeit gods. Help us to, help us to put our faith in you, our trust in you, the only one who is effective to save and Lord, help us as we go into our weeks. Help us to, to be oriented 
as people who long to serve you and who go out to love those around us as we seek to, to, to honor you, the one who has saved us to the uttermost and, and, and who is renewing every single part of us. So help us, Lord. Help us to be a people who follow you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.